This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. How the jobs report affects rate expectations. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, September 1st, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined by Noel Atchison, editor of the Crypto is Macro newsletter. Noel, always a pleasure to have you with us. Always enjoy these conversations. Ash, so good to be with you today. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Noel, we've got you here on a big day. Obviously, the jobs number coming out today. Labor market appears to be softening. Lots going on. You know, one of the things lots of people focus on is just this number. I know that you have a broader perspective. Give us the context for this number today. Tell us what it means and why it matters. It was a really exciting day. It's been a really exciting week, actually, Ash. We've seen quite a lot of signs come out over the past week, about 10 days, if you like, that hint that a slowdown in the very hot jobs market might finally be here. And lo and behold, today's unemployment rate ticked up higher than expected, notably higher than expected, at 3.8%. I've said often, probably on your show before, Ash, that look back over time, when unemployment starts to move up, it moves up fast. And this is what the Fed has been waiting for. The big question, though, Ash, isn't really so much what is unemployment doing. It's one, is this move here to stay? And two, more important, what's the Fed's reaction going to be? That's what really matters, because it's not so much the jobs market that's obsessing investors these days. It's what will the Fed do about it? Exactly right, uh, Noelle. And the question that lots of folks are asking right now is, does this give them cover to hold steady? excuse me, this month, uh, and then for how long does it go forward into November and December? Those are the big questions. By the way, we should say also payroll additions weakening, 187,000 new payrolls added. And by the way, as you know, downward revisions for the last two months. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if what's interesting, Ash, is that the market is taking this in a very, I guess, haphazard way, fractured way, if you will. We've got the expectations as priced in by the CME futures. That has ticked up for a hold, for a pause at the next meeting in September from 80% just a couple of days ago to 93% when I checked this morning. So you've got the futures market saying, yeah, we are definitely done with rate hikes. Looking forward over the coming meetings, again, the futures market is saying, we are done and rate, rate cuts will be coming early next year. Then you've got the bond market. You probably saw the treasury yields. They dropped initially, especially in the short end, but they shot up right after. So you've got the treasury yield saying, 
no, maybe we're not done yet. We think rates are going higher. Sure, there's a lot of other factors in there, but treasury yields are heading higher. They're certainly higher than where they started the day. And you've got the stock market that seems to like the news as well. So you've got a lot of different messages coming out. You've got the stock market and the futures market basically telling the Federal Reserve we don't think that you're we don't think that you're telling us the truth when you say you're going to keep on hiking. We've got the bond market saying to the Fed, yeah, we hear you. We think we know where you're coming from. The Fed is, of course, looking at inflation, which, as we saw yesterday from the PC figures and we've seen on many other readings, not just in the U.S., but around the world. It's not done yet. Not even close. Yeah, so well said, Noel. Uh, you're obviously talking about federal funds futures. Uh, this is something that the pros look at on Bloomberg, the WERP function. Uh, but if you don't have access to a Bloomberg uh, terminal, you can also go up to the Atlanta Fed and look at the expected three-month average SOFR, SOFR path. This is secured overnight financing rate path. Uh, and what you can see is that number uh, has maybe at this point, it looks pretty horizontal at the beginning of the line, but maybe a little bit of a tick up, maybe another 25 basis points uh, coming out uh, toward the end of 23. And then it just drops precipitously. It's down, uh, let me see if I can see it on my screen. Uh, it's down uh, another 250 basis points. These are material, material cuts that are being priced in uh, when you look at this tracker on the Atlanta Fed website. What does that mean for people who don't have a strong background in macro and why is it so important? Well, basically, it's the rate expectations that are driving investment theses across asset classes, across all asset classes. This matters a lot because it matters to whether credit will be available, what kind of monetary liquidity is coming into the market. And, you know, we all probably fondly remember the pandemic days, which were not fun, but uh, certainly the liquidity that was being pumped into the market made any stock or stockholders and crypto holders feel very happy. We are looking forward to those days coming back. I think the market, especially the stock market, is expecting to come back much sooner than the bond market is saying. I personally agree with the bond market. I don't think we're going to get that kind of liquidity anytime soon. Of course, liquidity can manifest in many different forms, but the easiest, the most obvious, the, the big hammer, if you will, the rate cuts, I don't think that's coming anytime soon, unless there is a terrible calamity and nobody really wants, wants that to happen. It's an interesting story, Ash, and we can dive into this a bit as to what the Fed's priorities are going to be coming into an election year. Right. That is always a wild card, isn't it, to see what happens uh, with regard to the election cycle. Uh, by the way, I should say the uh, 210 spread coming in a little bit right now. This is the spread between two-year and 10-year treasuries uh, ticking into about uh, a little bit narrower to minus, uh, minus 69 basis points. So again, still significantly inverted. I know we can go down this macro rabbit hole, uh, and I know that you spent a lot of time thinking about this, Noel, but let's talk a little bit about the implications then for asset prices, why all of this matters, why investors care uh, about all of this deep, wonky macro stuff that you and I both love. When the, as we then touched on very briefly a moment ago, and you're right, I didn't fully answer your question there. Why does this matter? Because of the expectations for the driving forces behind asset prices. Always asset prices on the way up are driven generally by new money coming in. Where is this new money going to come from? When you have monetary tightening, when you have consumers slowing down spending because they're starting to be worried about their job, when you have corporates worrying about their financial balance sheets and for many of them, in fact, going bankrupt. So where's this new money that is going to propel the continued increase in asset prices going to come from? 
I don't think it's coming from anywhere. This is one of the reasons I'm particularly bearish on many asset classes. I think bonds are slightly in a different bucket at the moment. They tend to look at different metrics for their economic decisions. I think crypto is in a different bucket, perhaps not very short term, but once we're over this particular um, ennui, I should say, um, crypto will be in a different bucket. It's um, interesting also that we touched on earlier, Ash, the different messages coming from the bond market and the stock market slash futures market. The bond market going back forever. You remember when you started looking at macro stuff, they always tell you the bonds are the smart money. Watch the bonds. They're the smart money. They're the ones who are not influenced by narratives such as AI or things like that. They're the smart money to watch. Also, Bonds tend to focus more on real income, real data, real yields, adjusted for inflation, whereas stock market investors tend to focus more on nominals. So are the bond markets here, as usual, telling us the real story, as in rates are going to be higher for longer? Or is it the stock market with their rather cheerful stories about the impact of some of the new technologies that you've been talking about on your show? Yeah, very well said. Uh, I think it's probably fair to observe that the bond market has the better long-term track record. Indeed. And again, everyone's going to say, oh, but things are different now. And yes, they sure are different, but bond investors are still bond investors. Stock market investors are still stock market investors. And so it comes down, Ash, to what are the rates going to be at the end of the year and what are they going to be at the halfway mark through 24? Is what the Fed is saying about perhaps another hike and no cuts in the immediate future the correct outlook or is the stock markets willful ignore, ignoring, willfully ignoring that particular narrative? Is that where the real story lies? I mean, S&P 500 is up almost 18% year to date here and we're only in uh, September. It's back to where it was before the hiking cycle started, Ash. This just blows my mind. In what universe is the outlook as good now for earnings as it was back then? And sure, I know you look through the humps to, you know, a year out. But even so, this is not taking into account the cost of the interest rate hikes on corporations, on the federal, on the federal government. But also, it's not taking into account what? a hike in the unemployment rate is going to do to consumption. There is no way, Ash, that corporate profits are going to continue to justify the stock market valuations they have when consumers are starting to fear for their jobs. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because NASDAQ composite up 35% year to date. NASDAQ 100, obviously a subset of the largest companies in the NASDAQ composite, uh, up now 42% year to date. I mean, these are just absolutely mammoth gains. And, you know, let's celebrate them. That's fantastic for stockholders. But the question always is, what's going to happen going forward? And this spills over into other asset classes as well as into economic predictions, because you remember what it's like, Ash, when you're seeing headline after headline about stock market cataclysm, stocks down 10% in a day kind of thing. If you're doing your supermarket uh, shopping for the week and you're seeing this as you're waiting to pay, that's going to make you perhaps want to spend a little bit less because the headlines are screaming doom and gloom on you, at you. And then you combine that with, you know, friends who are losing their jobs, or if maybe you're worried about your particular situation as well. So that's going to rain in space. Spending as we start to see unemployment really tick up because reigning in spending affects profits, which affects layoffs, etc. It's a vicious cycle, which is why I said at the beginning, unemployment, when it moves, 
it does move fast. That said, there's a caveat. If I just insert a caveat, this 3.8% figure that we saw this morning, which was a very big jump from the 3.5 in the previous month, maybe it's a blip. I, I, to be honest, I don't know a lot. I've heard a lot of people talk about the impact that the SAG-AFTRA strikes may have had on this particular right. figure. It seems uh, a hefty hike for that one-off, if, if I may. The yellow bankruptcy also, I've heard that um, cited as a factor that might have impacted. Well, that's not as temporary, unfortunately. So what are we going to get in the next one? If the next one goes up even further from here, that's a very big shift in the narrative. That's going to make the Fed perhaps rethink their plans for another hike before the end of the year, maybe pause and wait and see what happens first quarter. It is also going to start to intensify the political pressure. You can't really have a rising unemployment in an election year. You just, you just can't do that. And that brings in the fiscal question, which is probably Jerome Powell's nightmare at the moment. Well, that, that's a whole different thread. Explain what that means. The fiscal question, yeah. again, you can't have poverty in an election year. And so fiscal measures could perhaps get through a very divided Congress if it means it keeps people warm and fed. I mean, that is something that we can all get behind, no matter your political allegiance. Right now, there's it's very difficult to get any spending plans through Congress because of the divided nature of the politics. I've never seen it like this personally. But also, there's just little wiggle room. There was a recent downgrade of US government debt. There could be more in the offing. That's just embarrassing on the international stage at a time when the geopolitical situation is arguably more fraught than it has been for decades. And when it comes to fiscal spending, right now mandatory spending plus interest payments pretty much take up all of the revenue. And you can argue that you're going to have less revenue if there are less corporate profits or even less, less corporations paying tax and, and less income tax as well on, on the individual side. So less revenue, foreseeably for 2024 higher expense, mandatory plus interest expenses, because rates are certainly higher now, means there's very little discretionary room. So any new spending, even if it is to keep people fed and warm, which we can get behind, any new, any new spending is going to come through debt. There's going to be more, even more debt financing than is already on the books. And who is going to buy those bonds, Ash? Is it going to be an American public who's already feeling the pinch for a recession? Is it going to be foreign investors? We know China and Saudi Arabia have been selling recently. Or is it going to be the Federal Reserve? We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're gonna do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holes barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. Boy, what a perfect segue. 
Uh, it is something that I wanted to talk about here, uh, which is a conversation between Andreas Steno Larson uh, and Dennis Lockhart on Real Vision. Uh, this comes to us Monday. It's called Will the Fed Continue to Embrace a Longer Term Hawkish Stance right here on Real Vision Essential Tier, I believe. Let's take a look at that. There have been a lot of academic studies on that question Ooh. and how many basis points uh, X amount of balance sheet shrinkage amounts to. Um, in my uh, in my experience, at least, uh, nobody came up with an absolutely conclusive number. It's an important policy because I think the committee feels they simply have to get the balance sheet down. And what I find interesting in the most recent discussion, although it did not uh, come up in, in Powell's speech uh, last Friday, is the notion that was actually put forth first by Lori Logan of the Dallas Fed, that they might continue to shrink the balance sheet even after starting rate cuts, meaning two tools of policy are arguably going in opposite directions. That discussion has continued and it was actually in the last minutes of the July meeting. So it's an interesting development that they feel so strongly about the balance sheet that they wouldn't pause that program if they began to cut rates. All right, this is a fascinating question here posed by Dennis Lockhart, formerly uh, the president of the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank, which we just cited data from a few moments ago. I know this is a little bit of a technical question, so let me set this up. Uh, so right now, obviously, interest rates have risen from near the zero bound, near the zero lower bound, up to 525 to 550, a significant increase in a relatively short period of time. So you have rates not just rising dramatically, but rising dramatically over a relatively short period of time. Contrast this with the Federal Reserve balance sheet, which is still above $8 trillion. If you look at this chart, you can go and see it on the Federal Reserve Bank of, uh, of uh, at St. Louis, the FRED database. You can see that just dramatic spike up from about $800 billion prior to the global financial crisis. Up right now, uh, down off its highs, which closed at nearly $9 trillion uh, to about $8.1 trillion. This is still an enormous amount of money. Obviously, this all has stimulative effects, uh, and yet you have rates rising. Locker talking about the relationship between rates and the balance sheet, how it's not really an exact science trying to price what means what. You know, Noel, big picture, how do you think about this? Rates rising, but the balance sheet staying remarkably elevated despite a rising rate policy. Remarkably elevated is certainly the way to put it. Yes, the Fed has been selling debt into the market for what, the past year now, if I recall correctly, but they barely scratched the surface, drop in right. the ocean. One of the, you know, ex other factors uh, affecting Treasury yield at the moment is the Fed's running off its balance sheet. But uh, I, I, when it comes back to the question that was, was just asked, can the Fed continue to run off its balance sheet no matter what happens to inflation rates and everything? And, and the, the hypothesis that it has to, it just has to because it promised it would. Well, yes, and it would be nice for the Fed to keep its promises for its reputation and its credibility. But Ash, it's going to have to choose. It's not going to be able to, one, continue to bring inflation down by holding rates high, and two, continue to help the U.S. government. I know it's supposed to be independent, but let's face it, it does have to help the U.S. government 
um, and by buying the debt that the US government is going to have to issue, because this is the unspoken third mandate. We've touched briefly on the Fed having to juggle the need for stable prices, which means bringing inflation down, and maintain full employment. It's, it's a trade-off. You can't have both, not in a market where you have supply chains somewhat constrained or vulnerable to, to abrupt changes, shall we say, just read the headlines every day. So you have the Fed choosing between stable prices and full employment. It's choosing stable prices because that is what its reputation relies on at the moment, that and only that. And Powell has said many times, unemployment affects many people, but inflation affects everyone. He's he's unfortunately and, and tragically correct in that. The third unspoken mandate, and this is where the Fed continuing to run off its balance sheet comes into play, is financial system stability. I don't think the Fed can continue to run off its balance sheet when you have the US government issuing a ton of debt to keep people fed and warm it just can't do that. It has to step in and buy that debt. Else we're going to see bank collateral seriously hit by the hike in yields, which leads to a decline in prices. That is going to be necessary to entice investors to buy the flood of issuance that's coming. Well, you know, between the two uh, official stated pieces of the dual mandate, it's kind of pick your poison. Which direction do you want to go in? But when you factor in the financial stability and the systemic stability, uh, does it become essentially an impossible trilemma where the Fed has to optimize for three variables simultaneously that they just are not able to do? Absolutely. And that's why I think it's going to have to choose to sacrifice, unfortunately, full employment. We know that a lot of people are, are painfully going to lose their jobs. This is just not good. But there are ways that the federal government can help. The most important thing is to bring inflation down because that does impact financial stability as well, just through its effect on collateral. And it's collateral that keeps the market humming. Yeah. Uh, talking of questions, I wanted to take some questions from our audience now because we've got some lined up and they are quite good ones. Uh, the first one comes from one of our regular viewers, Ralph Humphrey on the Real Vision platform, wants to know what's her view on what's happening in European markets? Does she have an opinion also on commodities? Hi, Ralph. Well, I'm actually in Europe. So yeah, I do have a I do have a view on that. I live in Spain and we've been paying a lot of attention to our inflation rates here. Spain was one of the leaders and look how great this new inflation rate fall is. How good are we? Without, you know, disclosing that it was entirely due to manipulated energy prices. We're seeing the other side of that now with the fierce uptick, but we're seeing fierce upticks in inflation in other key economies as well, such as France, such as Italy. Germany had a few of its uh, regions surprised the upside as well. And the European expectation, EU expectations, sorry, I should specify, EU expectations for inflation are also higher. It's not looking good over here in Europe and the stock markets are probably going to get hit by that. They were rising this morning largely because of the commodity impact, which is a nice segue into the second part of your question. I'm fairly optimistic on commodities because I, I think we're blowing the Chinese slowdown out of proportion. We're starting to see signs that the decline in manufacturing may be bottoming. I think it's too soon to call that personally, but we can be pretty sure that they're going to do what they need to do within certain parameters. And even if they don't meet the 5% target, that's a big social cost for Premier Xi Jinping. But 
4.9%, is pretty darn good growth anyway. It is still a hefty growth. It's less than was hoped for. But that growth is going to drive demand for commodities at a time when supply chains are still constrained, at a time when you do still have to contend with oil production cuts, and at a time when a lot of new mines have not yet come online. So I'm bullish on commodities, not so bullish on the European stock market, and somewhat skeptical that the efforts to bring inflation down are anywhere near done, much like in most of the world. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Well, we've got another question. I'm just going to skip out of order here because this is one that is exactly uh, to that point. This comes to us from Fat Hulk Ride Ebyte. Uh, uh, why is no one talking about energy? Uh, you know, I'm looking at WTI here, 85.65 right now. Uh, this is CL1 New York Merck Futures, October 23. Pretty significant ride up from the summer. Uh, call it early July, uh, coming in at about 69 bucks. Now we're trading at 85. 64. This is a considerable run up here when you look at this over the last few months alone. And by the it's way, let me ask you, and let me ask you this question also. Uh, is this about uh, organic supply and demand factors? Or are we starting to see the cost of money here uh, creeping in? I think it's organic supply and demand more than the cost of money, but there's a lot of politics in there as well, as in you know, there's just not a lot of new supply of the fossil fuels coming on stream because you can't get financing to spin up new fossil fuel productions because of politics. But so talk, uh, talk about that because it's such an important point. I will before I do that though, but to what was what you just mentioned, Ash, the WTI is at its highest point so far this year. It's it's yeah. at its record for the year. And you know, just what is that going to do to the inflation base rate? It's easy to produce nice declines in inflation led by energy prices when you're coming down from a very high level. But when you're going up year on year, which we will be as we head into the autumn, then that is going to produce some very ugly impacts on inflation. And yes, we know that energy is stripped out, but let's face it, energy does feed through to absolutely everything. This is the cost of inputs of absolutely everything. And of course, consumer sentiment regarding inflation. When you see the price at the pump shooting up, you feel the pinch of inflation and that's going to impact your spending behavior elsewhere. But uh, your question, Ash, which I think I might have forgotten, but it was to do with the, the production facilities coming on stream. Yeah, you, you, you said essentially that it's very difficult to get financing for those projects uh, purely for political reasons. What's the impact there uh, and how does it manifest itself? We're seeing the U.S. shale production start uh, decline, for instance, because a lot of the fields are old and it's very difficult to get the financing to spin up new ones. At the same time, we're seeing U.S. reserves, energy reserves, hit rock bottom levels practically, and they're going to have to re, you know, replenish them in into increasing prices, which is going to cause the prices to increase even further. Uh, in Europe, it's even starker, we could argue. Here, the green politics is more harsh, perhaps, than elsewhere in the world. It's, you've got Germany giving up clean production because coal is easier and faster to increase the output for. There was a headline of that this morning that just left me thinking, what? This is absolutely crazy. So we have the constraints in the fossil fuel output when you do still have increasing demand. You also have Saudi Arabia that has transmitted loud and clear that it will do whatever it takes to make sure 
sure that the price does not fall. It is probably going to this week extend its production cuts further. We have Russia producing less. The swing factor could be Iran if Iran is now becoming friendly with other nations again and is indeed, as is rumored, doing a backdoor deal with the United States. We could see some more production come in from there. But I think that will be offset by the voluntary declines that were just mentioned from Saudi Arabia and Russia and the involuntary declines from field technical issues in Nigeria, Angola and Libya. So this is coming into winter. We had a really mild winter here in Europe last year. We were blessed with that. Are we going to be able to say the same this time? It's been very hot this summer. It doesn't mean that we're going to be able to get away without colder than expected temperatures as the end of the year draws near. Boy, you started that answer with this uh, almost the definition of a perverse incentive when you start to see dirtier forms of production coming online uh, because of essentially what is really just politics. I mean, I love the planet too, uh, but having people freeze to death and starve to death is just not an alternative. And you have to wonder at what point uh, do politicians have to start dealing with reality rather than bumper stickers? Absolutely. And to be honest, you know, whoever would have guessed that Russia would invade Ukraine? It was nowhere to be seen on the geopolitical uh, bingo game, right? And you had Germany becoming increasingly dependent on Russia for its energy imports. And let's not forget, Ash, that Germany is one of the, is the most significant economy in the European Union. And why? Because nuclear was just politically very unpopular. So let's close those down. We can get nice, clean natural gas from our good friends, the Russians that are just over the border, what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong, indeed? Here's a question from Richard Kruger that's right in your wheelhouse, Noel. Uh, does Noel believe we will be pushed into a CBDC? Uh, let's talk a little bit about the context of that for folks who aren't crypto degens. Uh, what is a CBDC, central bank digital currency? Uh, what does it mean? Uh, and why are there fears, particularly in the crypto community, about CBDCs coming online? That question, Ash, used to be so easy to answer. It's no longer so easy to answer because there are so many different paths that that answer could take. CBDC, <laughs> Central Bank Digital Currency, is a blockchain-based asset issued by a central bank. But it gets complicated when you ask the question, are you talking about retail or are you talking about wholesale? Now, if you're talking right. about retail, you're talking about the cash that we use every single day go, well, used to use every single day, uh, going digital. And this opens up a whole host of questions as in, does that mean I won't need a bank account anymore? I'm going to bank with the Fed because the Fed is issuing digital money. Does that mean I don't need, you know, my typical bank accounts and my apps? Does that mean the Fed is going to be, the Fed, I'm using this in the global sense in the in, the, in Europe, obviously it's the ECB. Um, does that mean that the central bank is going to be controlling the who can and cannot make retail payments? It all gets very, very murky. But the bottom line, is, in my opinion, we are going to see wholesale CBDCs because they can make a huge difference in cross-border transactions. And in my opinion, that would be benefit trade, it would benefit currency conversion, and would certainly benefit the confidence in settlement of contracts. It, I think wholesale CBDCs are net a good thing, and not to mention fascinating when you overlay them onto the increasingly fragmented geopolitical payments framework. 
but we have, when it comes to retail, I think we're all getting very upset about nothing. Yes, China are encouraging, in air quotes, intensified use of their retail CBDC, and there are legitimate fears that this will enhance surveillance and lack of privacy. But to be honest, that's not been a feature of the Chinese payment system anyway, and they are embracing the convenience. And when it hits the cross-border trade, then that is actually a net benefit. In Europe, we will probably have a retail CBDC. There seems to be good progress and momentum behind that. But to be honest, I don't think it's a big deal because I don't think anyone's going to use it. We don't need it. It's more a look at this cool, shiny thing that we were able to implement. It's, it's not going to be a thing. And in the United States, no way are they ever going to get a retail CBDC. There's just not the political will to do so. And it is such a huge change. Can you really imagine this particular Congress, divided as it is, agreeing on anything as fundamental as that? It's much more complex than people think, and there's a lot of resistance, political resistance to this anyway. So bottom line, I don't think it's going to be that much of an issue, and I do think that the wholesale aspect of CBDCs can improve global trade at a time when that is strongly needed. Well, I can't imagine this Congress agreeing in which direction the sun rises, let alone on a CBDC. Uh, but I wanted to end on a question here about uh, Bitcoin as we uh, close out. Uh, this one question comes from Paul English, another one of our regular viewers. Uh, what does Noel think the reason is for heavy Bitcoin outflows lately? We should say, obviously, uh, this has been a volatile year for Bitcoin. That statement has been true from the day uh, that Bitcoin was created until the present. Uh, it's up year to date. It's up uh, year over year. Uh, but uh, not a great month, not a great week uh, for Bitcoin trading right now at 25415 Paul English wants to know is what's the reason for the outflows? The outflows are largely because of a lack of interest from the new money. At the beginning of this conversation, I did talk about how it's new money that drives prices up. There's no new money at the moment coming into the crypto market. Uh, the crypto native investors, they're there, they're holding. There's signs of continued long-term accumulation, even through the winter, even through the first half of this year. And even now, there are signs of that accumulation continuing. But that's small compared to the big pool of macro investor money that is still, despite the... Um, intensifying tailwinds, it is still sitting on the sidelines. I've been giving a lot of thought recently as to why is it still sitting on the sidelines when the upside here, given the likelihood of a Bitcoin spot ETF before the end of the year, why is it still sitting on the sidelines? And I came to the conclusion that it's because there's no strong catalyst just yet. There is so much market and traditional market uncertainty. Crypto markets are less so. Traditional market uncertainty, so much still that macro investors are still trying to figure out what are they going to do with their stocks? What are they going to do with their bond? What are they going to do with their commodities? There's, they've got their hands full and there's no urgency yet to get into crypto. Well, Noel, you've managed to bring it back full circle brilliantly here at the end of the show. Uh, final question to you, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers with. We've covered a tremendous number of topics here today. My key takeaways are that I personally, and this is not investment advice, I believe the stock market is wrong. There is a correction coming. I believe the crypto market is wrong. There is significant upside. I do think the crypto market could be hit if there is a strong stock market correction because of the overlap between some investor groups. And when you want to sell in a hurry, crypto is open 24-7, 365, unlike many stock markets. Um, but I do think that this correction which we have coming is the necessary step for the crypto market to reawaken, for expectations to be reset, and for the next economic cycle to begin.
Noel Perfection, a crisp, definitive takeaway. We always appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much, Ash. Been fun. Noel Atchison, thank you so much. Uh, thanks again for listening today to Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back on Tuesday, close for the holiday here in New York, in the United States on uh, Monday. We'll be back on Tuesday at 4 p.m. See you then. Have a great extended weekend, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.